0: All of a sudden, you think you're sitting on one thing and it turns out to be something else. Does this
1: patient really need to be intubated?
0: Everyone needs to be
2: on the same page that this is a watcher.
1: I like the study because we
0: debate this kind of thing.
3: Which group won? Did they tie or did they lose?
0: All of these things come at a cost welcome back everyone to critical care
3: perspectives in emergency medicine this is mike winters from the university of maryland school of medicine in baltimore maryland and well we've reached the end we've reached the end of 2023 here in ccpem and our last podcast in december of this year and as always we are going to hit and touch on and discuss do a deep dive on an article that was recently published in the care of a common patient population that we see in the emergency department and in the intensive care unit. But before we jump into that hot-off-the-press paper, let me bring in who is joining me, the stellar co-host here on this podcast for CCPEM. I have Dr. John Greenwood, Dr. Peter W., and Dr. Rashid Al-Hadi. Unfortunately, Dr. Rodriguez has succumbed to we think just an upper respiratory illness, as many of us have this time of year. So he is on the men. We wish Rob the very best for this holiday season, a quick recovery. And undoubtedly, you will hear him back in early January when we do our annual papers of the year. But John, let me turn to you. How are you
0: this recording? I'm doing great. Nice to see all of you guys again. It's December and In December, I find that I enjoy every now and then a bourbon cocktail, (laughs) a hot toddy by the fire, things of those nature as it gets cooler, colder in the Northeast, which is kind of aligned with what we're going to talk about today. So I'm excited to learn a little bit more about what you guys would do to me if (laughs) I'd show up to your emergency department.
3: Unbelievable. Well, that's a little bit of a teaser for this paper. But before doing that, let me check in with Peter. How are things?
1: Things are great in New Orleans. Weather has just turned cooler for us. So if it's in the 60s, that's brisk here in New Orleans. So we love that. And John in New Orleans, he'd be like the rest of New Orleans.
3: Understood. All right, Rashid, how are things out west?
1: Things are going really well.
2: Like you said, coming to the end of the year with some heavy rain. And we are staying inside, staying cozy, turning on our virtual fireplaces. So, you know, the end of the year is going to be great and looking forward to discussing this paper somewhere with you all.
0: That's so San Francisco of you, Rashid, your virtual fireplace. How techie.
3: Well, we should also mention uh, congrats to Rashid. He's ending 2023 with a new family edition and also matching into Critical Care Fellowship. Rashid, I don't think we touched on it last podcast. Where are you headed or where will you be six months from now?
2: Yeah, so I'll be starting Critical Care Fellowship at Stanford University. So an only 30, 40 minute drive from where I'm at right now and looking forward to getting started, but a lot to learn before I start in 2024.
3: Well, congratulations once again. All right, CCPEM listeners, let's shift now to the topic at hand, the paper at hand, dealing with a patient population that we see quite commonly, and that are those patients that come to our emergency department initially who are minimally responsive, perhaps comatose, due to an acute poisoning. Dr. Greenwood, you prepared the agenda for us this podcast, so I'm going to hand the mic over to you. Let us know what this paper is and guide us through this discussion.
0: No, absolutely. I found this paper really interesting. It is hot off the press, just published on November 29th in JAMA by Jonathan Frund and colleagues out of France. And the title of the article is The Effect of Non-Invasive Airway Management of Comatose Patients with Acute Poisoning. And this was a randomized control trial. Now, I think all of us have encountered a few patients with acute altered mental status after ingestion of alcohol or other substances, and certainly it's a common presentation to the emergency department. Now, in fact, in the United States alone, it's estimated that approximately 20,000 patients receive intubation and mechanical ventilation for acute poisoning each year. So this is a pretty significant number of patients. And in the case of severe obtundation, and oftentimes I think we're all familiar with that mantra, GCS of 8 means you intubate, there may be an increased risk of aspiration, pneumonia, and hypercapnic respiratory failure. So certainly we're always aware and cognizant of the potential bad outcomes that can happen in patients who prevent comatose or severely altered to the ED. But as we know, intubation is not a risk-free procedure. Certainly, decisions about the risks and benefits of this procedure need to be considered before embarking on that RSI pathway. So I thought we could go over this trial and kind of talk about how it might apply to our practices in the United States. And I'm interested to hear what you guys think. So maybe we'll turn to Rashid. Rashid, tell us a little bit about the objectives and some of the methods, specifically inclusion criteria of this trial.
2: So this study's objective was primarily to assess if a more conservative approach of withholding intubation In these patients were comatose with acute poisoning, and comparing that group of conservative treatment to more routine practice in which the decision of whether or not to intubate these comatose poison patients was left to the discretion of the treating physician. To jump into the methods of the study, this was a multi-center unblinded randomized control trial, again, of withholding intubation, and this was conducted amongst 20 emergency departments, and one ICU in France. The inclusion criteria were patients who were adults greater than age 18, and if there was a clinical suspicion of acute poisoning. And again, the definition of GCS for a coma was a GCS of less than nine. The patients who were excluded were pregnant patients, incarcerated patients, those who had other emergent clinical conditions such as respiratory distress, if there was a brain injury that was suspected, seizure, or shock. Other specific toxin ingestions that were excluded from this study were patients who were suspected to have cardiovascular drug poisoning, so those with calcium channel blocker overdoses, beta blocker overdoses, or those with ACE inhibitor overdoses. The other demographic that was excluded were those who were poisoned from a drug that could be acutely reversed, for example, opiate overdoses and naloxone.
0: That's great, Rashid. and I think that that helps us kind of understand how we can maybe make this generalizable to the patients that we see, particularly excluding patients with cardiovascular drugs, I think is important because of the hemodynamic ability that can occur with those drugs and then obviously respiratory distress and brain injury. We're going to manage those by a separate path here. but, In terms of the intervention, Peter, tell us a little bit about what the intervention was in this trial and the outcomes. You
1: got it. So the intervention here, they were randomized at a one-to-one ratio, looking at the control group versus the intervention group. And that randomization could occur within the ambulance, understanding that EMS in Europe is physician-led and they're on the units, right? On the ambulance units themselves. In that case, there were sealed envelopes that were available to the treating physician for the randomization. Consent was waived unless a legally authorized representative was available on site, and the intervention group intubation was withheld unless the patient experienced the seizure if they had profound hypoxia noted by an SpO2 less than 90% despite the administration of nasal cannula oxygen. If the patient began vomiting, or if the patient exhibited a shock state, and they noted this as being a systolic blood pressure less than 90 after one liter of administration of IV fluids for four hours. So this is true shock, right? Afterwards, the patient was managed at the discretion of the emergency physician. Now, let's look at the control group. Decision to intubate was left at the discretion of the emergency medicine physician. So when we look at outcomes on this, their primary outcome was the composite endpoint of in-hospital death, those who died in hospital, the ICU length of stay, and the length of hospital stay over the next 28 days. The primary outcome compared groups using a quote-unquote win ratio, and that compares the incidence of the individual outcomes between the two groups. Then it creates a ratio of wins, ties, and losses. So it really does feed into the U.S. competitive spirit there. The secondary outcome is individual components of the primary outcome, which included percent of patients receiving mechanical ventilation, the number of ventilator days, the percentage of patients who developed pneumonia, and also intubation adverse events, such as desaturations, dental trauma, vomiting, cardiac arrest, hypotension, and failed first pass intubation. So those are the secondary markers as well as the
0: primaries. All right. That's awesome, Peter. Yeah. I think these are all very patient-centered, ED-centric kind of outcomes that they looked at. And so essentially, if I can summarize that intervention period was a four-hour monitoring period unless something bad happened, or the decision was left to the ED doc to essentially do what they thought was right. So we got four hours of monitoring and then just do as you normally would do. All right. So let's turn to Mike tell us what they found here we go
3: all right so which group won did they tie or did they lose all right so there was a total of 237 patients which the investigators randomized after exclusions ultimately about 219 were randomized 112 of those to the restricted intubation group versus 107 in the usual care group in terms of those demographics Not unexpected, the average age was on the younger side, 33 years of age, with a median GCS of 6, so less than 8. The most common ingestion, as you would anticipate, was alcohol in about two-thirds of cases, followed by benzodiazepines, and that could have been also concomitant use, along with other illicit substances such as cocaine, amphetamines, heroin. When we get down to intubations, intubations occurred in the control group about 58% of the time versus 16% of the time in the restricted group. And when we get to the primary outcome, that composite primary outcome using a win ratio, well, that win ratio was in favor of the delayed intubation group, so that restricted intubation group. No deaths in either group, importantly. And overall, the intervention group, where was that driven with respect to that primary endpoint? Well, it was a reduction in the ICU length of stay. So those in the intervention actually weren't admitted to the ICU. There was an overall ICU length of stay of zero hours versus a day. And when we look at the secondary outcomes, so the individual components of the outcome, the percentage of mechanical ventilation, ventilator days, as Peter explained, there really wasn't a difference reported by the authors in adverse events the incidence of pneumonia, the median ICU length of stay, along with the hospital length of stay. So take-home message with respect to the results. Looking at favoring the delayed intubation group, the authors report a conservative strategy could be used to avoid intubation in comatose patients coming in with acute poisoning and overall without a significant difference in adverse events.
0: I think that could be incredible, Mike. You know, if I was talking to one of my colleagues about this, they said to me, you know, John, what if I told you that I had a drug that could reduce the rate of a bad outcome by 40%? That drug would be so hot in the hospital, be flying off the shelves. And I said, that's interesting that you frame it that way, but certainly there are no free lunches and all of these things come at a cost, right? So I'd like to think that we... Practice in a way where the patients who need a procedure will get it and those will not. But I'm interested in your guys' perspective on this because it has generated some controversy about how valuable this is in terms of does this change your practice at all? Because the author conclusions were essentially that a conservative strategy can and should be used in patients who are comatose without the exclusions coming into the ED. We shouldn't be intubating those patients, but I don't think it's that simple. Maybe I'll start with Peter. You're shaking your head, I can see that. And having the experience and the wealth of expertise you have from New Orleans, I'd love to hear your perspective on this.
1: You know, I like the study because we debate this kind of thing on a nightly basis in New Orleans at our hospital. Does this patient really need to be intubated? you know, if you're going to commit them to a tube, then you've committed them to an ICU length of stay. The reality is if you don't commit them to the tube, you've committed them to an ICU length of stay as well, because that patient's not going to the floor. That patient's going to remain in your emergency department. They're going to be in a reverse Trendelenburg position, and they're going to have very close attentive nurses watch them because they're going to be a fall risk. So it's a risky proposition any way you look at it. Those of you who are lucky and could get this patient who's unintubated, admitted to an ICU in this comatose state, good luck with that one because somebody else is probably going to wind up intubating the patient for the same rationale that this paper was created for. So their marker is really ICU length of stay driven data but the reality is you're just changing the critical care environment from an ICU upstairs to your ED downstairs. And so I don't know that at the end of the day, it's really done anything different. I was keen to see if the adverse events would be higher or lower, or, and they weren't really a difference. And that's because I think the N is so small, right? We're dealing with just over 100 patients in each group. So you're really not going to see that many vent complications versus non-vent complications in the groups. But I think that it's interesting. I don't think that it's a game
0: changer for me. Okay. Now, Rashid, I'm curious because certainly there are some things, and this wasn't discussed in the paper. Let's just say you have a patient who's pretty intoxicated their GCS is low. What are some things that you might do clinically kind of to stave off that intubation? You know, you just started your shift. You have your cup of coffee. You're like, I have eight hours. I have nine hours. What are some things that you might do clinically to kind of keep this patient in a good position to ward off intubation? Are there any things that you're doing, including in your practice?
2: That's a great question. And I think It's a question that's very relevant. And I feel like even within three and a half years of residency, you know, we've seen plenty of patients in this situation with acute, especially alcohol intoxication, who are comatose with a DCS of less than eight. And what I've seen is a lot of variation in practice about whether or not to intubate this person truly for airway protection. So I would say for my practice, if I get a good history that this person was found around a lot of bottles of alcohol coming in with slurred speech, you know, I use my clinical gestalt, my exam to help confirm in my clinical submission of why that person's comatose. And in order to answer your question about how to stave off intubation, I think one of the main things is, like Dr. W. was mentioned, is putting this person, sitting them up, putting them in the first Trendelenburg, making sure that we try to minimize any like aspiration risk for this patient. And I would say if they need supplemental oxygen, you know, administering that, I would always be cautious about whether or not to give this patient like a non-invasive ventilatory support, you know, thinking about could this increase this patient's risk for aspiration if they're not protecting their airway. And I think perhaps the most important thing I would do is communicate with the bedside nurses. And I think this is probably one of the biggest barriers to doing this in the emergency department is communicating with your team and saying, hey, we're gonna try a conservative approach we're not going to intubate this patient, but everyone needs to be on the same page that this is a watcher from a mental status standpoint. And if anything changes clinically, just to notify us so that we're prepared to intubate this patient if necessary.
0: I think it's a great point. And I think all of us, if we visualize our emergency departments, we have Those few rooms that we know sick patients should never go to, and it's probably a good idea not to put them in the corner room. I remember when I worked at Mercy Hospital in Baltimore, we used to have chairs right by the charge station. And the charge nurse wasn't exactly in love with that, but at least kept the patient in plain view at all times. And in the case of severe intoxication, you you know, we might put an end title CO2 on them. If there was an idea that maybe there was a note. because let's be honest, oftentimes these are co-ingested. There's multiple medications going on at once. There've been a few of my colleagues that swear by different methods of naloxone for opioids, whether it's either the 0.4 dose or even inhaled versions or whatever. I generally stick by the small doses of Narcan titrate to breathing, but having a highly visual area is totally important. All right, Mike, how about you? What are your thoughts? I mean, specifically, there were no deaths in this study. So the lack of adverse events, does that change your perspective on this or any other thoughts kind of about the conservative approach and the outcomes that this study found?
3: Yeah, thanks, John. And all three of you have said outstanding points. Peter, you referenced the overall small sample size, and I think that's important to note. A few things that I would say, and this is probably obvious to all of us listening, that we see patients that we come to know or maybe not come to know that come in under the auspices of some type of acute poisoning or intoxication. And I think we all have the one to two M&Ms per year that we do sit on these patients understandably observe them. And it turns out they've got some other catastrophic illness that's resulting in their comatose state. So always be mindful of that, quite honestly. I think in Baltimore, our primary acute poisoning is heroin ingestion, heroin, fentanyl, etc. And so when we see these folks with altered mental status, comatose, it's usually and relatively quickly reversible depending on what co-ingestions it was. And so I will be honest, the amount of times we are intubating patients for an acute poisoning or intoxication is on the low side. We tend to do more intubations for airway protection because we're a comprehensive stroke center. So we get all folks from a neurologic standpoint and from expected clinical course, emesis, intracerebral hemorrhage, those are the more common airway protection. For acute poisonings, on the whole, we do lean towards a more conservative approach, just that's our practice pattern, but we definitely utilize a lot of capnography in addition to pulse oximetry and cardiac monitoring. We will position these patients, even though we are constrained with a lot of boarding, we don't really have hallway positions other than a temporary EMS offload position. So often these patients are placed in rooms, the the nurses do a great job, our nursing colleagues do a great job in checking on them, but we tend to use a lot of capnography, frequent reassessment, and thankfully, in general, don't intubate a lot of these folks for airway protection.
0: No, that's great, Mike. It's great to hear kind of different perspectives and lenses. And I think even just as we talk to people in different communities, and let's be honest, like even your ED, if it's a small, sleepy community, Emergency department where you might not have the resources to do this. That maybe, in order for the safety of the patient, you may choose. I have to intubate this patient and transfer them to get a CAT scan because I'm not sure what's going on. I think it's not uncommon that we don't get a great history, so there is some trepidation about being so conservative unless there's a very clear ingestion. Because something as simple as cocaine ingestion, right, can lead to a hypertensive crisis and an intracranial hemorrhage. And like you said, Mike, all of a sudden you think you're sitting on one thing and it turns out to be something else. So I suspect that's probably why the enrollment in this trial was so low is they probably had to cherry pick those perfect patients to fit within the inclusion and exclusion criteria of this trial. But let's just say you get that one perfect patient, then I think there is some evidence here to suggest it's not unreasonable to be a little bit more conservative because these patients might actually do quite well. So with that, I'll hand it back to you, Mike, because this has been a really fun and interesting discussion.
3: You did an outstanding job, John. Thanks so much, Peter, Rashid insightful expert comments as always. And thank you to the three of you. Thank you to Rob as well. We greatly missed him for this podcast. He'll be on the men quite quickly. And with that, we're going to wrap things up for 2023. We want to thank every single one of you for listening to CCPEM here, whether you join Midway, halfway or a little bit beyond halfway through the year, or all year, we so value you listening to us on the podcast. And it's just continues to be great to interact with many of you at conferences, get the feedback that you send us on these podcasts. Love to continue the conversation on each of these specific ones. So thanks for those emails that you send us. As follow-up, we are so, so appreciative and grateful for this community together as we continue to learn, discuss topics, on key articles throughout the year. We here at CCPEM wanna wish you and your families nothing but the best for a happy, healthy holiday season. Happy New Year to all of you. We cannot wait to speak to you in just a few weeks. In early 2024, we'll do our annual literature update for key articles from the 2023 EM Critical Care and Resuscitation Literature. And we've got so many great topics on tap for you in the coming weeks, the coming months that we are excited for the new year. With that, we'll wrap things up. And we will look forward to talking to you on our first podcast of the 2024 year. Bye for now.